Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Riot Season. <laughs> no, welcome to the Black History Fashion Show. It's your host, Lester Cahill, thanking you for once again letting me into your headphones, your earphones. On today's show, we're going to talk about black power. We're going to talk about black power and the angry elite. I'll tell you a couple of stories, or maybe one story. Uh, from the Rodney King riots I can tell you about since I am now a riot veteran. L.A., Minneapolis, and one almost riot in Compton that I tried to join, but fortunately I could not. But it's riot season, y'all. It's the Black History Fashion Show. We'll get you through it. Come with me if you want to be entertained, I guess. So after the break, come back, tell you about Rodney King, and we'll set up the rest of the show. Okay, we're back. I want to get started today, before I tell you about my Rodney King experience, talk to you a little bit about 1879. So this is the Black History Fashion Show. Let's do a a little bit of history. So... 1879 was a notable year in black history because about 40,000 Southern blacks migrated to the Midwest. They were called the Exodusters. Um, They were described in one publication in Kansas as people being in utter want. They had nothing. They were fleeing Mississippi and Louisiana. In the case of the blacks who ended up in Kansas, Uh, They were fleeing Mississippi and Louisiana with absolutely nothing. The black churches in Kansas, notably the denomination I grew up in, the African Methodist Episcopal churches, the AME churches, they supported these destitute refugees, I guess you could say, uh, as they came into Kansas, found them food, shelter, clothing, and were able to move them further inland uh, into Kansas. So black folks in Kansas probably have roots in Mississippi and Louisiana. And big chunk of them came up in 1879. Also 1879, a large section of blacks left North Carolina for Indiana. So many went to Indiana that the Democrats called for an investigation because they thought the Republican Party was trying to pack the vote. They thought the Republican Party was enticing or bringing blacks from North Carolina, settling them in Indiana, knowing that they would vote for Republicans and the Republicans could grab political power in Indiana. Imagine that world. So that's 1879 for you. Hard to even think about. Okay, so let's take you to 1992. I'll give you a little personal history. It's 1992. A great friend of mine from South Korea, Soo Jung, she was living east of Los Angeles in a town east of Los Angeles, you know, maybe half an hour or more outside of L.A. And she was going to be starting... School at UCLA, that fall coming up, right? I don't remember if she was going to be taking any classes in the summer, but she was. She had come to the States. She had been in the States for a little while. She 
um, ran in the same circle of friends I ran in, and she was just fantastic. Totally loved American culture. And she's here in the United States. She's in Southern California. So she is scheduled to move to Los Angeles over in the Brea area on April 30th, 1992. And I, really not having too much to do, <laughs> I agreed to help her move. I said, sure, Sujung, day comes, I'm going to help you move. Well, you know, hey, Lester, my lease is up April 30th. Got to be out of here. No problem, Sujung, I got you. April 29th, 1992, the Rodney King verdict comes down. And L.A. explodes. <laughs> I've been telling people that people in South L.A., Watts, Compton, Long Beach Corridor, I don't think we really thought that those cops were going to be convicted of the Rodney King beating. It was more of a, you know, the, 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 everyone was holding their breath, I would say. Like, once the trial was going to be held in Simi Valley, which is a bedroom community of Los Angeles, which is where it's really just a police town almost, once you knew that the trial was going to be held in Simi Valley, you knew that the odds were that those cops weren't going to be convicted. But black L.A. was kind of in the posture of, well, we'll see if the white folks will surprise us this time. Well, they didn't. So black L.A., you know, South L.A. explodes, Crenshaw explodes, rioting, fires, looting, beating poor Reginald Denny, just mayhem, right? That's April 29th that gets started. It's April 30th. Here's Sujan ringing my phone, reminding me of my promise. And I said, well, it's early yet. Let's go for it. So I go out to her, her apartment, help her load up a, a small U-Haul truck. She didn't, thankfully, she didn't have much. Load up her U-Haul, head into L.A. Because I was not living in L.A. at the time. I was, living, I was also living out just outside L.A. So we head in, 10 freeway. Now you talk about masks because the, the smoke was so thick. It was just black smoke covering the freeway. And <laughs> for some reason, there was still a traffic jam <laughs> going through L.A. This had to be around... I don't know, by the time we got there, because we got started early, I was like, we got to get started, we got to get done, because there was already talk about a curfew and all of that. So, I don't know, it's maybe mid-morning, um, 10.30 or so, I don't know, 11 maybe. We're driving on the 10, trying to get into L.A., over towards, you know, the Bray area. And, um, you know, it looked like a movie. You're stuck in traffic, unbelievably, somehow on the freeway, looking down from the freeway into the streets, and you see fires. You see people just running through the streets. You see people with guns. You see people throwing bricks and rocks and smashing things. And um, People are wearing masks, right? Uh, so they can breathe, basically. And we go through there. We get to her apartment complex. Going, <laughs> And then she also had to live on a pretty high floor. 
and there was no parking. So we were having to cover quite a distance to get her stuff into the building, into the elevator, up, and all of that. Meanwhile, everyone's in a panic because there's lots of rumors flying around about where the rioters were headed next. And people were going to the roof of the building and looking out. And there was, it was just, you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know what was happening. We were just concentrating on moving every single box, moving every, you know, the box spring, the mattress, um, small refrigerator, television, getting it into that apartment. And I told her, I said, Sujung, I don't know what's going to happen. There's going to be curfew. Do you, have, you know, I'm asking her, do you have somewhere to go? Because you can't stay here. There's no possible way you should stay here. I would feel bad leaving you here. And uh, so she had a relative um, that lived outside of L.A. And I said, okay, well, let's get you there. And she's a very, 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 very sweet uh, uh, lady. And she goes, well, look, I'll get you lunch. I'm like, well, let's get out of town before we start talking about lunch. So... We get to Alhambra, right outside of L.A., very large Asian population there, and we have no idea what's going on, right? We're in a U-Haul, and I really didn't play the radio, the AM radio, to get any news. I was just concentrating on trying to figure out a way out of that town. So it's late afternoon by this time, and so we decide on Alhambra to get some food on our way to you know, where we were going, and... So, circling around, and uh, so we park, and she and Sujang had found a place. She goes, hey, you know, it's up the block here. We'll just park and walk down there and get some food. Okay, great. Get some Chinese food. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, we're walking, and people are yelling things at us from cars, and they're yelling in Korean. I knew about 20 words of Korean at the time. And I knew it when I heard it. Because I knew Sujung and I knew her friends. And people were yelling. And I said, what did that guy say? And she says, oh, he was wishing us to have a, a, ha a, a good day. And I was like, that didn't sound like have a nice day to me. But anyway, we kept going. And by the time we got to the third car... Uh, well, one car, another car, and then someone walking across the street yelled something. And, you know, each time she was just saying, oh, they're just wishing us to have a good day. And, and you know, this was the most aggressive, have a nice day wishing I had ever encountered in my life. And I knew she was full of it. There was no way she was walking with me and, and you know, people seemed to be kind of hostile. And I, I'm like, hmm. Okay, I'm not a rioter. Every everything is cool, but people were were eyes, eyeing us suspiciously. Well, we get into the restaurant. Middle of the restaurant, they had wheeled a giant television, um, you know, and the tables kind of were well, two TVs actually, because the tables were in you know kind of in semicircle around both. We get in there immediately. We're shot some dirty looks. I have no idea what's going on. We sit down to eat, and. Uh, the waitress comes over, she's very rude, and, you know, I order a Coke, and she brings the Coke out, and it's open. She didn't put it in a glass, no ice, or nothing, just brought me this open Coke can. So Young looks at it and goes, you know, I wouldn't drink that. <laughs> so I asked, I said, hey, can you, can you, uh, can you bring me an unopened can? So the waitress, you know, leaves. And then what happens? P 
pandemonium breaks out in the restaurant. I look over to my left, and I see on the TV screen the rioters that reached Koreatown and the Korea, the Korean businessmen were on top of their uh, businesses on the roof, roofs of their bu- bu- uh, their businesses, holding rifles and shotguns to hold off the the rioters. The it's upside down where we are, right? People are yelling. And I'm looking at Sushan, and she's looking at me, and I'm like, we got to get out of here. <laughs> so we just leave, and we're making our way out of the restaurant. And I know what they were shouting at that point. There's a certain word that all black people know is, is universal. <laughs> Whatever the Korean or Chinese uh, uh, version of that word was, that's what was being shouted. So anyway, get back to the U-Haul. I get uh, Sujung to... I think she had a sister, if I remember right. Uh, well, I know she had a sister, but I think I took her sister's house somewhere. And um, and that was my Rodney King day. So, and now here we are at the Minneapolis riots, where we're at mob riots around the United States and apparently throughout Europe as well. It's bewildering to me. A little angering as well. Um, I don't think everyone in those riots is necessarily there for George Floyd, police corruption, or any of that. In fact, I'm quite sure, I can't say I know 100%, but I'm quite sure the great majority of them are not in it for George Floyd. I'm all for peaceful protests, but I'm not for mobs. And I can tell you the Rodney King riots didn't really advance the cause of black people, didn't really do anything for reforming the Los Angeles Police Department. I have a sickening, a deepening feeling that the same thing will occur here. These crazy people, as of this afternoon, I'm, I'm taping this on Sunday evening, um, June 7th, these crazy people here have announced that they're going, the city council, not people, not just anybody, the city council is saying that they're going to defund and disband the Minneapolis Police Department. Now, how that will help black people, I have no idea. How that will help black businesses fend off intruders, no idea. How that will help black women who might be getting beaten and slapped in the street, which I saw here two months ago. And had, and who did I call? I called the police because a woman was being assaulted right in front of my building. I don't know how no police would have helped her. And also, I'm 51 now. Who cares? I'm at the end, right? The company I work for... Probably someday it's going to listen to one of these podcasts and fire me. But that's all right. I'm at the end here. But I think about my daughters. I think about them walking into an interview. I think about them walking into maybe uh, some sort of transaction that they want to conclude with someone, financial or otherwise. And what will be the first thing they think about my daughters? Will they associate them with the erudite and successful Obamas? Or are they going to think looter, rioter, bad attitude? 
we're always fighting for our image, black folks. We are always fighting for our image and the image of peaceful black protesters in the righteous cause of, of protesting George Floyd's murder. That's one image. Black people punching and knocking people out, throwing bricks through stores and setting fires, stealing. That's not the image that helps us. So thought about a lot of that this week and thought about black power, the black power movement. I want to talk about black power when we come back from the break. And I don't want you running off because I'm talking about black power. It's I might surprise you. I might enrage you. I, I, I don't know, but you need to stay tuned. We're going to talk about black power. We're going to define it. And I'm going to talk about it in a way that is normally not heard on MSNBC or CNN or Fox or any of these places. If it's talked about at all, it's talked about wrongly, in my view, anyway. I'm going to give it to you from an ordinary black man's perspective. A typical black man's perspective. I'm not saying it's the majority opinion of black folks, but I'm telling you there's enough of us out here that share it. I'm going to try to give voice to it after the break. Okay, we're back on the Black History Fashion Show. It's your host, Lester Cahill, today talking about black power and our angry elites. So I'm going to talk about black power for a little bit. And when I do, I want you to erase the image. Now, I'm asking you to erase an image I'm about to put in your head. I understand. Uh, but I want you to not go there. I want you to not have this image in your mind of some black guys, angry faces, sunglasses, black turtlenecks, black leather jackets, giant afros holding guns. That's not what I'm talking about. So, black power. I'm going to give you the root and the foundation of black power in America today. You ready? Because you need to write this one down. The root and the foundation of true black power in the United States of America is now today and always has been prayer. Oh, he's going to preach today. Nope, I'm not going to preach today. And, I, and some of you may want to tune out and say, oh, God, here we go. Some moralistic... Uh, you know, black reasoning. I don't go to church for a reason or I get enough of this on Sunday. No, not at all. I'm just going to give you a fact. The fact of the matter is this generation of black people with all of the wealth and opportunity and liberty that we enjoy and sometimes squander and use poorly, it is the result of centuries of prayer. I'm telling you this because I grew up in a church full of black people from Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, Alabama, South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee. And you know what they would tell me? We prayed for this. We prayed for this day that you're walking into, Lester. You can live wherever you want. You can go to school wherever you want. You can study and become whatever you want. Your vote counts. You have everything we didn't have. We have more than our fathers and grandfathers, but we don't have what you have. 
And on another platform, on the uh, inaugural episode of the Black History Fashion Show, I told you the genesis or the rigid, or the the reason this show is named a Black History Fashion Show because we would have Black History Fashion Shows <laughs> to raise money for scholarships. It'd be Black History Month. We'd be celebrating Black History and. And one of the events would be a fashion show. And most of the times you wore your own clothes, right? And you, you, you walked with some swag and, or some clothes that people hadn't seen you in, right? And uh, get your hair cut real nice and, uh, you know, did some grilling because it's California forever wasn't too cold. Or you went somewhere, maybe it was indoors, but, and everybody shared some food. Or sometimes if you really got, you know, typically you do it at a church, but if you really got fancy, some cases maybe you'd even rent a little room in an auditorium or something and have it. So I grew up having that drilled into me. And I'm not the only one. Boy, we prayed for this. You heard this. You heard this in church. You heard this outside of church. This is your day. This is your time. God hears prayers. God delivers his people. God upends injustice. He removes oppression. And here you are. And we can't wait to see what you're going to do. You got that in some form or fashion. So the root of black power, and when I say black power, I mean black agency, black independence, the black way of life unfettered by oppression from the government the root of it is prayer hate to burst your bubble it ain't the dudes in the dashikis in the beads it ain't the dudes with the unloaded shotguns posing really nice it ain't even the guys with the loaded shotguns shooting it out with the police nope that's not what it was so let me tell you a characteristic of black power. Black power is independent. Think about Rube Foster. He started a baseball league, a professional baseball league. That dude had a third grade education in Jim Crow from Jim Crow, Texas. He started a baseball league. Booker T. Washington started how many schools? 500? I don't know. He walked from West Virginia to coastal Virginia, walked so he could start school, get an education himself, and then started helping his people. Nobody did that for him. Black power is independent. And I'll tell you how phony the Black Lives Matter movement is. I'll tell you how phony all of these uh, alleged well I'm not going to call them leaders let's call them spokesmen for the black community are now how sissified and puny and tiny are their minds and how bought and paid for they are by ideological interests because they always are on TV they're on your podcasts they're in print or whatever print is now they're on the internet Writing, hollering, yammering, bleeding about white supremacy. Okay. Well, what's the most visible sign of white supremacy in the United States today? Time's up. Correct answer? Planned Parenthood. 
Planned Parenthood was started by Margaret Sanger, a eugenicist, someone who thought black people should have, have their population controlled, reduced, because they were inferior, because they were human weeds. Go look up Mar Margaret Sanger. Go look up what she thought about black people. Go look up why she thought birth control and, more importantly, abortion was so important. Go look up her tactics on trying to fool black people or cajole black people into getting abortions. Man, Ruth Bader Ginsburg even said it a few years ago. She goes, what are we arguing over abortion for? Isn't it just population control for certain populations? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Ruth. Somebody woke her up and she spoke the truth before they can make her go back to sleep again. But that's what Planned Parenthood is about. It's about population control because there's a Planned Parenthood in every ghetto from New York to San Diego. You'll know you're in the ghetto because you'll see a hair store run by Koreans. You'll see a Popeye's. You'll see a church's chicken. You'll see some churches, some liquor stores. And eventually you will see a Planned Parenthood. It ain't there by accident, baby. Enterprise Rent-A-Car used to open up branches where they saw Bank of America's because they were after the same customer. And Enterprise was just drafting off of Bank of America's research. And I know this because I was a manager in Enterprise. They just, you saw Bank of America, eventually you're going to see an Enterprise. Well, Planned Parenthood did no research. Why are they always in ghettos? It's not about researching who their clients will be. It's about drumming up business. And what's business? Business is decapitating black babies before they're born. So, I haven't seen any marches against Planned Parenthood. I haven't seen any of the, the typical, normal, and ubiquitous big mouths on, on television speaking out against Planned Parenthood. I don't see any of the legacy civil rights organizations linking arms in front of Planned Parenthood and singing hymns and talking about overcoming. You know why? Because that would alienate their white, quote, allies, close quote, and alienate the cash from those allies. The people talking about white supremacy, it's a hustle. Talking about black power and what black need to do, black lives matter, and we want black people uplifted. No, they don't. The most vulnerable black people in this country are black babies inside the wombs of their black mothers, and these people won't raise their voice an octave in protest. They'll never look sideways at Planned Parenthood because to attack Planned Parenthood is to put their platforms in jeopardy. The Black Lives Matter manifesto is anti-family. It's anti-woman. And I'm telling you that because anytime you elevate this transgender agenda and say, well, anybody's a woman, anyone, anybody's a woman. You don't have to menstruate. You don't have to have breasts. You don't have a baby. Who cares? Anybody can be a woman. That is the erasure of womanhood. You erase womanhood. You're erasing the family. So the people talking about 
elevating black lives. They're not about elevating black lives. You'll know someone's about elevating black lives when they acknowledge how we got here, when they acknowledge the prayer, when they acknowledge the, for lack of a better phrase, the Christian morality of the people who put up with the oppression, who endured it and overcame the oppression, who said, you know what? You can hate me, but I'm going to go create something good. You can hate me, but I'm going to go and, and start a business, help others start a business, start an academy, start a, a school, start a baseball league, start a hair care company. Hate me all you want, I'll start my own social safety net. Because those people didn't repay hatred with hatred. I grew up in a church. One of the members was a driver for the Vanderbilts in Tennessee. And I used to ask him what it was like. I mean, at the time I knew him, he was about 100. And I used to ask him, he had his hair, had his teeth, had his mind. It was, he was just an incredible little tiny man. And I used to ask him what it was like in those days. And he would always say, I, I let their hatred be their problem. Their hatred wasn't going to change how I behaved. And I heard that message from him, Mr. Johnson, from Mr. O'Quinn, from Mr. Lewis, from Mrs. Hatcher, from Mrs. Chapman, to all of these people from all over the South. Same message. None of them grew up together. They just found themselves at this church out in California. Same message. We prayed for this. We hoped. And people who have hatred in their heart don't have any hope. So that's black power. So let me define it a little more for you. Black power is not uh, I'm going to say it's not separatist, and so let me be careful in how I define that. It's not Marcus Garvey. It's not Garveyism. It's not, hey, we're all going to get on these, on these boats, and we're going to go back to Africa. No, it's not. Marcus Garvey's a little more comp complicated than that and deserves his own hearing. Uh, he's kind of reduced to this caricature of uh, this guy in the shipping line. He's going to take black people back to Africa. He's more than that. And I don't want to lump him as just uh, some mindless separatist. But it's, so when I use his name, don't hear me as denigrating Marcus Garvey. But it's not separatist in the sense that it's not uh, defeatist. It's not, we can't make it here. This isn't our land. Let's leave. Uh, Black Power is not Nat Turner. I know there's been some attempts to fetishize or idolize Nat Turner, Nat Turner's Rebellion. And if you don't know who Nat Turner is, I guess I'll give you Nat Turner, Slave Rebellion, Virginia. I think he killed like 31 um, white folks. He went on a rampage, said that God told him to do it. Uh, black Power is not black supremacy. It's not. It's not repaying. It's not our turn to discriminate, as Thurgood Marshall once famously said. You boys have been at it. Now it's our turn. No, it's not black supremacy. That's not what black power is.
one of the elements of black power is not necessarily, but one of the elements is, uh, I wouldn't say blacks only, but blacks need to lead. And that leadership can take many different forms. It could be Martin Luther King Jr. The way he led. He led a multiracial, multiracial, multireligious, multiethnic movement. It was not just black people getting it done, right? In Martin Luther King's case. But he was the front man. He spoke. He provided the vision. And a vision that he had picked up down through the decades, right? So he built on that. So you could be with Martin Luther King. Lots of white folks, they love telling you, hey, I'll march with King. It's kind of like, you know, a calling card. That's great. I'm glad you did. And Martin Luther King wasn't going to exclude you. Uh, black churches. That's black power. And typically black churches are led by black pastors, I know of one exception down in Dallas. That guy's kind of extravagant, but typically if you're talking black power, you're talking black churches. And what the effect black churches used to have in the black community, I, I, something like these riots many times, you know, can be softened or turned in a different direction by the influence of strong churches and strong pastors in a neighborhood. It, it pains me to think that the black church is so weakened or worldly or otherwise ignored that in Minneapolis and all these places, the people out front are not pastors. That is not a good sign. It could take the form of uh, the Crisis magazine that W.B. Du Bois uh, edited, I think, and published and wrote, where he talked about uh, black issues in a very pointed uh, manner about black equality, civil equality. He talked about all kinds of political and social issues. He was not partisan, though. He was strategically partisan sometimes. And he did make some uh, endorsements in the elections, but it was all born of the fact of what's going to benefit the most people in the black community. Who's going to do that? Which party, which candidate? What policy will help uplift the most black people? That's where he came from. He did not. He was not about bought and paid for mouthpiece for the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. He was independent, and he knew what he was talking about when he addressed an issue. How about that? Uh, I could be another example is Frederick Douglass and the abolitionists, right? So Frederick Douglass is in the abolitionist movement, but he's it's not a black movement. But Frederick Douglass is one and probably the most powerful speaker on behalf of the abolitionists. So black power, black leadership can take many different forms and has taken many different forms over the years, but the common denominator has been not partisanship, not, not belong to one party or another, but the, 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 or ideology, but the common denominator has been what is it going to take for black people to be wedded and melded into the society with all of their full civil rights and doing what they want and what they can with those rights. I will say that um, black power can be political, 
but only as it leverages its vote. So Du Bois could tell blacks in the South, you know, your vote's really not going to count, but keep voting for the Republican. And he would tell blacks in the North, the Republicans there are ignoring you, and if there are whites offering you a place, offering you policies that will help you vote for them. We don't get that kind of nuanced thinking anymore. Black power can be economic, but only as it focuses on all tiers of black, um, black reality, right? Uh, it can't leave the poor behind as I think that was the um, I think there's a criticism to be made of the last true civil rights movement, the one that King led is that it marched in the name of the poor but it left poor people behind it really was a middle class black uprising is what it became it, uh, I have a boss who famously would tell me all of the black guys with PhDs we're tired of working in mail rooms. <laughs> and uh, so you see now the biggest uh, income uh, inequality, the biggest gap in income in the United States is not between whites and blacks. It's between blacks with college degrees or white collar blacks and blacks without college degrees. The biggest income gap in the United States is between married black couples in, prof in professional jobs and single black mothers. That's the biggest income gap. Maybe we'll have another show and I'll tell you what, where, how that is driving a lot of the anger and, and rage you see in poor black neighborhoods. It ain't directed really at its root at white folks or white oppression. Well, I'll tell you, it's a lot of it's directed at people like me. Um, but we'll come to that another day. So, black power, where it addresses economics, really would be an independent voice that spoke for everyone, and it would look, all of the wealthy blacks... <laughs> in which there are many, many, many in the United States today and say, okay, where are all the academies? Where are they? Where's all the sports academy, uh, guilds, labor guilds? Where are, where, where, you know, where are we supporting the arts? Where are we supporting the welders? The mathematicians, the engineers, where, 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 where's that being supported? Where are you going in your own pocket and doing these things? Where are the social safety nets that we can operate and control ourselves? Like blacks had in the 1800s, blacks operated social safety nets. Blacks operated social insurance programs for themselves because no one else was going to take care of, an, uh, of a black person who was beyond working age. Or if you broke your leg and lost your job, where were you gonna, what were you going to do while your leg mended? What were you going to do? Or if your husband ran off and left you, who was going to help you? Blacks did that. At an era where blacks were locked out of society, they were able, 
willing and able to help each other. Now, that's not even heard of. And there's more black millionaires than you can count now. And not even millionaires. There's many, many blacks doing very well at their jobs. And not one dime is required of them to help the least of these, as black people like to say, in their communities. Not one dime. They No, they'd rather mouth pieties from the left, blame white supremacy, blame some white boogeyman. I guess in this day it's Trump or anyone with an R after their name and say, that's the problem. Now, they'll never look at themselves and tell you about their wealth and how they made it. They, they don't like telling those stories. They don't like telling you all the hours they spent at school, all the hours they spent studying, all the things they sacrificed and gave up to get to where they are, all the hours of how hard work. And really, white folks didn't play into it. They made it on their own efforts. They made it because... Whether they still go to church or not, I guarantee you somebody in their family line did. I guarantee you somebody prayed for their success. So that's black power. Very long segment, but I didn't want to break it up. Wanted to tell you about black power. That's what it's really like. It, it is not the performatively angry black person on television going through these pretend emotions about how they're so enraged and affected, affected about what's happening in ghettos and what the police are doing to poor blacks. Let me tell you something. The day they give up their condo on the Upper East Side or <laughs> the day they give up their place in Brentwood and move back to those neighborhoods or move back to the south to rural areas and start putting their money where their mouths are, then that's when you should start believing them. The rest of it, after they're done, you should clap because that's what you do for performers. So, black power. You can raise your fist in the air all you want, but your head should be, be bowed and you should be praying. Okay, we'll wrap up the show after the break. Thanks for hanging in uh, with me today. Talking about black power. I resisted the urge to talk about someone who I warned you about a couple of months ago, a uh, young lady, Candace Owens, and she's really, really going off the rails. I'm not going to get into her today, but that's not black power either. Reciting bad statistics about blacks and then collecting a paycheck for it, that's not black power. So, anyway, I'm writing on Dominguez Valley, uh, the Dominguez Valley blog. It's dominguezvalley.home.blog and it's Dominguez, D-O-M-I-N as in Nancy, G-U-E-Z. Dominguez Valley, all one word, dot home, dot blog. Check me out there. Some of you are, some of you are not, and I can tell because I don't get any responses from you. I might be a little bit more provocative on the blog than I am on the podcast, so go ahead, check it out. Um, hit me up at Lester of Compton on Twitter. I'm always open for a show, suggestions. I got a few good ones this week when I was back in Texas that I took note of and hopefully can get to uh, later this summer. 
And always you can find me where you're finding me right now in your headphones. And you can also find me on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcast, Overcast, and Radio Public. I think I'm leaving out one platform, but I'll catch them next time. So be safe out there. Be smart. Understand who's really speaking for your average run-of-the-mill black dude out there and understand who's just pushing a brand, pushing emotion, or really pushing something very, very dangerous to our society. They're misguided people, and they, but that doesn't make them any less dangerous because they're dumb. So, be safe, be smart, love your folks, and until next time, For the Black History Fashion Show, later, homies.